0: Well, you might recall—I think it was just last month—Bloomberg News is uh, Rebecca Greenfield. She reported how it is well documented that female founders face an uphill battle when they are courting investors. And even more, there's a study by market researcher Crunchbase that finds that women have an especially difficult time pitching businesses considered gender neutral. So let's talk about this because our next guest is really looking to change all of this. Karen Kahn is founder and CEO of I fund Women. She joins us on the fund, uh, on the fund, on the phone in New York City. Karen, nice to have you here with us. Um, I want to get into the difficulties that women have in terms of raising business uh, of raising money for their businesses. But tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing at iFund Women.
2: Yeah, hey, Carol, thanks for having me on. Sure. So, what the problem you're talking about is exactly the problem that we are working on solving here at iFund Women. So, iFund Women is the only crowdfunding platform designed specifically for early stage female entrepreneurs that provides not only the capital but also the expert coaching that women need to realize their visions and launch their businesses. And the problem that we're working on solving is that there is a complete lack of funding options for early stage female entrepreneurs. Only 1% of companies, regardless of the gender of the founder, again, let me say only 1% of companies regardless of the gender of the founder will ever raise venture capital. So what do the other 99% of us startup founders do to get our businesses started? We max out our credit cards or we try to take out a bank loan, and we fundamentally believe that nobody should go into debt funding the earliest days of their startup. And for women, the funding problem is not just about the actual capital. Of course, most women will tell you that the lack of access to capital is the number one barrier to them starting their businesses, but almost half of women will tell you that the lack of access to coaches and mentors to literally show them how to start up is a huge barrier, as well as a third of women will tell you that the lack of access to a community and connections of people in the hustle with them, starting a business is also a a big barrier. So the funding gap problem and being able to pitch to investors is really a systemic problem that goes from people that are going to raise VC to, you know, the mom and pops and people that are, you know, just going to grow a lifestyle business
0: me Let me just jump in for a second, because I am curious about women versus men starting businesses. What's, what's the uh, you know, level of activity that we're seeing?
2: Yeah, women are starting businesses here in America at two and a half times a faster rate than men are. Um, women are starting about 1,800 net new businesses every single day in this country. Wow. 650,000 businesses a year on top of the 12 million existing women-owned firms. And that all sounds really glamorous and fabulous. But when you look at the revenue, uh, the revenues that that these companies are are throwing off, the revenue is actually growing at half the rate as businesses started by men. And so women are starting with less. We're expected to do more with less. And frankly, we're not given the tools and the resources that we need. We raise money differently. We just do. We go to market differently. And there's this thing called the confidence gap, Mm -hmm. which is very, very real. Um, the way I describe the confidence gap is, you know, if you have two kids swimming in a pool, you have two little five-year-olds that are mm-hmm. going for swimming lessons. One's a little boy and one's a little girl. They go up to the edge of the pool. What happens? The instructor's in the pool and says, okay, kids, we're ready to go swimming. The little boy jumps in without even thinking about it. The little girl thinks about, do I have my floaties on? Am I going to drown? How deep is the water? Right. But once the little girl decides she's going to jump in the pool, that's a metaphor for entrepreneurship, She is exponentially more prepared more ready and more successful than men, so it's about preparing um, women to not only raise money, to, but to but to um, build stronger businesses and get their coaching to do that. And it's not so just a solution it, that we've built. And
0: it's not just a case of women creating kind of women-oriented businesses. KPMG did a study. Um, I think they looked at 91 financial technology companies. This was specifically in the UK. And they found that fintech firms with female founders were actually better investments. And mm-hmm. that those firms yep. with a female founder have more than double the internal rate of return on average than peers where the initial entrepreneurs were all male. So it's interesting. Why are we having such a difficult time getting that message across, especially to the investment community, who ultimately they just care about making a smart investment.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many layers to this issue, and it's not just about venture capital. So, yeah. only one percent of companies will ever raise VC. So, what we're focused on is empowering that 99 percent of companies who most likely will not raise VC with starting better businesses that are going to be more successful and uh, helping them along. So. The 1% of people that are raising VC, you know, it's – VCs are in the money-making business. They've got, they've got investment theses that they have to follow. So it's whatever the flavor of the month in Silicon Valley is. If it's crypto or blockchain or AI or robotics or whatever it is, fintech, etc. you know, each firm has a thesis. Right. And frankly, I don't think the firms really care who the founder is. <laughs> I think that they want to know that you've had an exit in the past. Right, And right. that you can make the money.
0: Right. So, so that's really, you
2: know, in the VC range.
0: All right, we got to run. Karen, thank you so much. Good to get uh, to check in with you. Karen Kahn is founder and chief executive officer of iFundWomen. You can find more information at iFundWomen.com. She joined us on the phone from New York City. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the news out of Washington. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. And I know when the outline bling. A little bit of Drake for you, and there's a reason why we're playing it, because Drake is along with uh live nation and some others that helped uh, close a second round of funding and is partnering uh with our next guest he's the ceo at network aaron levant is with us and he joins us on the phone from los angeles aaron nice to have you here with us uh drake live nation you got some pretty cool partners tell us remind our viewers and listeners what uh you're up to uh
3: thanks for having me um yeah, I'm the CEO of Network, which is a new video commerce company, and I guess the best way to describe that, to someone who wouldn't know, is we are basically a mobile-first, millennial, Gen Z-driven version of what QVC or HSN was to my parents' generation and bringing um, exclusive product drops through a live streaming video with Native Commerce on a daily basis with some of the most prolific brands and personalities in the world.
0: It's kind of like, I don't know, tell me if I'm right, but it's like combine MTV, YouTube, and QVC and HSN, that kind of thing, right?
3: Yeah, I think that's a good way. And, you know, we're kind of taking some cues from social media, from traditional retail platforms, from commerce platforms, and just kind of really, you know, bringing together a couple of these environments into one really exciting um, Platform.
0: Yeah, I was checking it out online, right? Um, and the network, the ntwrk.com. And it's really fascinating. Tell me a little bit of how long you guys have been up and what kind of activity you're seeing uh, in terms of people coming on the site and actually shopping this way.
3: Yeah, so we've been in business publicly for about six months. We launched in October of last year, um, you know, just when we kind of announced the company. And then we've been up in the air for about six months. And we, you know, released products with range of DJ Khaled and Beats by Dre or Odell Beckham Jr. and Nike and obviously Drake um, and you know so far, you know, we're getting hundreds of thousands of consumers, uh, creating an account on the platform, plugging in their credit card and spending an average of, you know, $100 plus per purchase. And I think some of the most interesting metrics that we have so far, in an average e-commerce conversion rate from viewership to purchase is about one and a half to two and a half percent. Mm-hmm. We're seeing north of 10 to 15 percent conversion on the unique way we've combined the entertainment and the commerce together into kind of one seamless native environment. So
0: roughly 10% you're saying of the folks that come a, come on, check out your website, sign up, ultimately it ends up in a purchase, and that purchase is at least $100, or the average purchase is about $100 plus. Yeah. That's interesting. And what about repeat business? Because I do think, right, the sustainability of this is not just a one-time thing, but to keep people coming back.
3: Yeah, it's new, so it's hard for me to give you some really empirical long-term Data, but mm-hmm. we've had you know depending on different audience cohorts because within the platform we could be doing sneaker stuff, we could be doing esports and gaming stuff, we're be doing beauty stuff, right? So there's a couple different audience cohorts, but the repeat customer rate even over this short period of time has been anywhere between seven and twelve percent of the people are coming back and making at least one to two more purchases, even in this short timeline of our of our business life cycle.
0: And I'm assuming the business uh, model for you guys is you're making a, a percentage on each purchase.
3: We're we're making we're a traditional retail company, stacked on top of a tech company, stacked on top of a content company. So our monetization streams are this: we have wholesale rights for brands like Nike and Adidas, where we sell their product, we buy it at wholesale, we sell it at retail. So you're Mm -hmm. making you know at least a keystone or fifty percent margin on those goods, as well as a lot of brands and academics pay us to be on the platform like they would a media company. So our thesis is that. You know, brands would go to media companies in the past, either buy advertising, get earned media, or branded content to stimulate consumers to send them back to a retail environment, whether it be their own or a third party, to buy something. So we're thinking brands can come to us, they can work with us in creating that branded content, and we can access a third-party retail partner all in one seamless environment. So we have kind of two different monetization streams.
0: So what's the biggest you know element of cost to what you guys are doing? Is it marketing? Is it um, cr- you know creating the content? What's what's your biggest uh, you know, cost uh, te- component?
3: Technology mm-hmm. uh, is, is probably our biggest cost. Headcount here in LA and. You know, having some of the best uh, developers and product people is, is probably one of our biggest costs. And then, you know, we're working with you know not nominally small talent. We're working with the likes of. Blake Griffin in the esports space, working with Ninja, working with you know a lot of these huge celebrities. So sometimes they own the brands, and then you know they get a piece of the action. Sometimes we have to you know pay these people a fee to come on. So talent acquisition is, is a high cost, um, and of course marketing would be right up there. Right. And the content we're producing is really high quality, and it isn't just always what you would think of in a QVC like someone standing behind a desk hawking a product. We like to make more kind of anthemic level brand films that um, you know speak for themselves and could be a content piece you'd want to watch on YouTube even if you weren't selling something.
0: Profitable yet or it's still too early? <laughs> it's too early to be profitable. <laughs> no pressure.
3: Um, you know, we, were, we were planning the business not to be profitable at this stage, right? We're, right. we're, we're a startup and you know we're, we're going for yeah. something much bigger. So it would probably be you know squeezing a lot of life out of the business if we were planning to be profitable in our first six months. But, you know, we're, we're gaining a lot of traction. Okay. Um, we're having tens of thousands of consumers by the day. Uh uh, create accounts on the platform, Got and it. we're seeing those people converting and, and well, continuing to come back, so well, we're excited.
0: Aaron, speaking of come back, come back and let us know in another six months how things are going, because it would be fascinating to get an update on the business. Uh, Aaron Levant, uh, he is the CEO at Network, joining us on the phone from L.A. They just did their second round of funding, led by uh, some of their partners, Live Nation and Drake. Warner Brothers also involved, so is Jimmy Iovine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week
2: on Bloomberg Radio. When you're drinking, when you're drinking, I
0: don't know if you can hear the song.
2: The show.
0: Now, our next guest, Camp, but it's good to you. a great I'm song sure about when you're drinking. It is fabulous <laughs> because drinking. our producer only picks fabulous songs. Uh, we're going to wrap up a week like we do uh, like to do, and we've got an edition of Sipper Sweat. And today we're definitely sipping, or at least I hope so. I do have a glass next to me. Uh, we're talking whiskey, bourbon to be exact. Derek Benham is CEO at Purple Wine and Spirits, here to talk about the launch of Redwood. Empire Whiskey. I love the name. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me here. Yeah, no, listen, thank you. <laughs> no, allow me. Thank you. We can go on like this forever. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Purple Wine and Spirits.
4: Okay, well, it's a company that I started in... Um, I'm moving the bottle so it's between yeah, us because it's a pretty... I started warm. in 2001. Yes. And uh, at the time, it was just a, a wine-based uh, company that um, you know we... Uh, sort of ideated and created and built brands, national wine brands, uh, one of which was a brand called uh, Mark West, yeah. which was a uh, uh, power brand in Pinot Noir in that sort of value uh, area of 10 to $12 per bottle retail. Yeah. And, uh, Good size
0: market, right?
4: Oh yeah, we sold. Uh, we built it to about seven hundred fifty thousand cases, and then sold it to Constellation Brands. You've yeah, heard of them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've sold two brands to them. The first one I built uh, uh, with my brother was called Blackstone Winery, yeah. which is a uh, Blackstone Merlot, another power brand in that in that category. I sold that to them uh, in two thousand and one. And then started my own business, uh, Purple Wine, and uh, built Mark West and sold it to them in 2012. And then decided, you know... I'm that not done kind yet? A, no, I'm not done yet. No, I had all sorts of th- uh, you know thoughts and kind of a serial entrepreneur, I guess, from a long time ago and... Because nobody else would hire me, I'd hire myself.
3: Uh, <laughs> that's like, and I and I decided, you, you know what, I'm gonna said.
4: I, yeah, yeah. And I decided I'm gonna do something different and, and uh, sort of recreate uh, the company, recreate myself, and I'm gonna build a, a distillery, a craft distillery, right in the heart of our winery.
0: Uh, so, I, so, so, tell me about the difference between wine versus spirits?
4: Well, I mean, obviously, wine is much lower alcohol and grape-based and spirits, yeah. you know, are grain-based. But you know, creating so. a
0: business, a brand, what's the difference? Oh, well. Is there a difference? Yeah.
4: I mean, you know, you're, you look at categories and you look at price points and you look at what's, you know, viable and what's not and where you want to be and that sort of thing. And, and then you, you know, start to ideate from from there. But in terms of uh, distribution uh, or route to market, it's actually very similar. Uh, it's a, not to get technical, but in uh, We're alcohol. Bloomberg. We're Bloomberg. We I get, get, it. get technical I get it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But, you know, in, uh, in Wine and Spirits, we have, uh, it's, it's highly regulated by state and yeah. federal agencies, and so there's you know a three-tier what they call a three-tier system and it's basically that the first tier is supplier or producer that's us yeah uh, redwood empire and then the second tier is is distributor and they're in uh, res- their respective markets they come and pick up the the material from us or the cases or whatever and, and take it back to new york uh, where we are now and and then they have their own trucks and salespeople and then they distribute to the third tier which is Retail and restaurant Oh, I love it Yeah, Explain so it's the market. same It's the same route to market But it's a completely different Sort of sales transaction in, in terms of like Well, wine is wine You open up a bottle of wine Yeah And it is that wine You open up a bottle of spirits And it could be A thousand different cocktails Sure, well, you can sip it. It's
0: funny that you say that because you walked into the uh, studio and I'm like, bourbon. And I told you about growing up. I'm from a large family. and me you know, too. And, and the generation that my parents were in, you know, cocktails like Manhattans and things like that, but whiskey sours. And I remember as a little kid having a little glass of my whiskey sour with tons of orange and cherries in it, but there was a little bit of bourbon in it as well. But that's harkens me back. It, it, I'm surprised... And it's just amazing the amount of folks that come in, the resurgence of spirits, right, in our right, world today. Right. Because well, I feel like for a while it went away, those cocktails, and then oh, well, it's all you're back. you're
4: clearly a, a classic cocktail girl, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a classic. I'm a cocktail wine girl too. <laughs> no, well, I mean there, there's, uh, what happened? What happened in spirits uh, is uh, in the last ten years is what happened to wine, uh, thirty years ago, and then beer like twenty years ago, which was. You know, wine was dominated by a few call brands and then, you know, it, it fragmented into more craft. And, yeah. and I think it's all of this. I, I have this theory, personal theory, that it all started with Alice Waters and Chez Panisse and the whole farm to table thing out of Berkeley. And just an interest in. I think you're right. An interest in, in, in where the food came from and, yeah. and then where the wine came from and what's the story and that sort of thing. And that's a
0: lot of what our conversations are about. Like, tell us tell us what I, the story Well, tell us what the story is. I've, I've got to tell you, it's a beautiful bottle. Yeah. And here, wait. We're going to take a sip because the studio here is smelling like this wonderful bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind if I join you? No. Okay. So we're going to get quiet for a second. Oh, my God.
4: Yeah. Okay. That's lovely. Yeah. So I knew when when I built a distillery... Uh, you know, I knew I wanted to do gin, which we do. It's called Benham's uh, Sonoma Dry Gin because we're in Russian River Valley of Sonoma, Northern California. Yeah, California also- is
0: crucial to this story. Oh yeah,
4: I mean, well, Redwood Empire is the name yeah. of the of the brand, which I I couldn't believe the trademark was even available, and we we got it registered, and and uh, then it was a matter of like, well, how do we bring it to life? Because you know, Redwood Empire is. Uh, a place, it's Providence, right? It's a strip of land that starts in San Francisco and goes all the way up to Yreka, where you have these magnificent redwoods. That, yeah. It's the only place in the world where they grow. And some of them are 4,000 years old, I love by that. the way. And they name them. They the the really old ones they'll name and and so this bourbon is named after one of the trees one of the old trees which I think is like you know, three hundred and fifty seven feet high and twenty eight feet wide and, and whatever but it's called Pipe Dream and they're federally protected and I love
0: that you have uh, Muir woods right John Muir
4: yeah well you know if if it weren't for John Muir Right, I, I don't know if you're from California. Or I'm not, where, but I've but gone.
0: I've gone there sure. and walked through those woods, yeah, well, and they're stunning.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm a native, so I grew up in the Sierras you and the California Redwoods. So, happening. so John Muir <laughs> was like, you know, part of uh, you know our our ethos out there. I mean, he's nineteen mid 19th century transcendentalist hung out with uh emerson and Thoreau, and then of course had a relationship uh, developed a relationship with teddy roosevelt and he and teddy roosevelt created the national park system and essentially they kind of coined the term redwood empire which is you know again uh, a provenance but it's also also an ethos it's like can do it's about individualism passion care love and you know, that's kind of what inspires our our, uh, our efforts at the It's
0: at kind the of what decillery. I'm thinking now that I've had a sip. I'm going to have another sip because we've got to run. So okay. thank you so much. My
4: pleasure. A great Thanks way for, yeah. to start our weekend. Yeah, bottoms up.
0: Bottoms <laughs> up. <laughs> i got to finish. it. A few more seconds to go. Cheers. Derek Benham, uh, he is Chief Executive Officer of Purple Wine and Spirits in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm looking at Redwood Empire Pipe Dream.
2: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Yes, indeed, it is time for The Drive to the Close. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Talk about the markets, but right now we have a headline crossing the Bloomberg. This is coming from the Wall Street Journal, saying that the FTC approves a roughly $5 billion privacy settlement with Facebook. The FTC commissioners voting 3-2 this week to approve a roughly $5 billion settlement with Facebook over the company's privacy mistakes. This is a person familiar with the matter telling the Wall Street Journal. The matter now moving to the Justice Department's civil division for review, uh, according to this report, which said that uh, DOJ reviews are, quote, part of the FTC's procedure, but typically do not change the outcome of an FTC division, uh, or decision, I should say. As for shares of Facebook, just a few minutes left in today's trading session. They're right now up about nine-tenths of a percent. All right, as we mentioned, it is time for the drive to the close. We want to bring back Ron Carson. He's co-founder, CEO of the wealth advisor at Carson Group. Uh, the Omaha, Nebraska-based firm has roughly $10.4 billion in assets under management. And today he's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back with us.
1: It's great to be here, Carol.
0: So what do you think of the market environment right now?
1: It's, you know, when you think about December, you know, we had this big sell-off. What a different and, world, right? And yeah, a totally different world. And then all of a sudden we have six months at, you know, the third best in 25 years. We have the bond market and the equity market. And it feels a little bit like, you know, 1995, maybe 1997, the Fed's coming to the end of their tightening cycle. Difference there, we had 30-year treasuries around six and a half, maybe a little higher. Big difference. And big difference. And um, it's, it, it, you know, this. I, I love the quote because it's so appropriate. The market continues to do whatever it needs to do to prove the largest number of people wrong at any given moment. And so trying to outguess this thing is so impossible. Um, and, you know, when you look at the, the brightest minds every year, guess what the heck's going to happen. And less than 50% of the time, if you go look at the survey, they get it, you right. it right. You know, so, you, you know, my, my own opinion, and I am the world's authority on my opinion, but don't come <laughs> making dramatic changes, you know, because c- getting really just getting your risk budget right is really important. But I think if rates stay low, um we you know equities could could trade at considerably higher multiples and i 'm not you know i 'm in that camp that i think Rates are going to stay low for an extended period of time, and any any debt. When I advise clients, I go with a, go with variable rate debt um, because I, I firmly believe you don't need to pay the premium to lock in a fixed rate, even though many would argue it's it's such a great rate.
0: But Ron is what going so what's going on is thank you very much Fed in terms of this easy money you know monetary policy. We certainly heard from Jay Powell several times this week, and he seems to be all in despite being data dependent and despite that recently stronger. Than expected data, you know, jobs report coming off of a weak jobs report, he seems to be still, you know, consistently on that path of lower rates.
1: Yeah, maybe on the dollar we should put instead of in God we trust and fed we trust. Yeah, right. And yeah. they've backed themselves into a corner. I mean, he's out there. If he if they don't cut interest rates, the market's gonna be really disappointed. But you look at the inversion in the yield curve, the market's screaming for it, right? And I think fundamentally we have what 13 trillion dollars of sovereign debt with negative yields can you imagine making an investment you are guaranteed to get uh, have a loss on that investment right. it's crazy. and that just tells me how fragile really the world confidence is today and and you know the trade disputes aren't helping and of course you know you get a wild you know tweet uh, you know tweet that comes out of nowhere, and that's not helping consumer confidence and certainly isn't helping CEO confidence making longer-term investments.
0: Is it just a case that the world confidence is fragile, or is it a case that actually some of the economic fundamentals... Are fragile as well, and I, I bring that up because we had what uh, an unexpected contraction in Singapore's economy. You had a slump in Chinese exports, you know. So it's a reminder that the world economy, you know, because of some of these trade tensions, you know, it is impacting things, uh, and we're seeing it play out in the numbers. So is it a case of just confidence is being chipped away at, or is it actually the fundamentals that are being chipped? away I think away it's at?
1: both. I mean, we talk about you know the consumers in pretty good shape. You know, retail sales are pretty good. Yeah, uh, wages are pretty strong. Ever we have employment's low jobs are you know plentiful it however doesn't feel that good though. It, but it isn't that's the point i want to make here is as you talk to people they are still anxious i mean i've never seen such a time this is my 36th year in the profession where we've had this great run in the equity markets and people are still feeling not really good about things and are not so secure um, in their life you know we have, we do have a lot of debt a lot of consumer debt out there while at the same time we've had this protect this long extended period where we've had such low interest rates that I don't even know if we know for sure the unintended consequences. I mean, one of them is this negative 13 trillion negative debt, but what, what other, what other surprises are building that will become obvious when they become obvious. And that's where I believe that under underneath the economy, there, there is a lot of fragileness that is um, that that most people are worried about. and I think the Fed sees it as well.
0: So, what do you do for your clients? You know, you wealth advisory firm, and I'm just curious. You know, we hear increasingly that when it comes to wealth advisor firms, it's not just your plain vanilla investments. You know, they have become you know much more active, uh, much more active in terms of the private equity world, in terms of investing in companies, and so on and so forth. What are the kinds of investments that you're mostly dealing with?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, um, you, understanding what your risk by it is, and getting that right is key to being successful. Behavior will drive performance more so than what the markets do. Having said that, hedge hedge your downside right now you can buy um hedge equity positions that hey if if the market continues to go up you can capture a big percentage of the of the ascent but if they start to decline you can really protect your capital also specialty and alternative kinds of investments that have no correlation whatsoever to the market there there are such as such as uh maybe it's a adjustable um uh a Note fund or bridge note fund where you can get a decent yield, have high security, not having to tie it up for, you know, for an extended period of time. Structured equity is another area that we like. you are actually, you know, being able to have a combination of debt and equity and right. direct ownership in a business have done actually performing very well in this environment in
0: the meantime there is an equity that you do like yes. save 30 seconds Disney up 32% you got a dividend I feel like it's the company and the CEO that can't do anything wrong
1: yeah Disney is an interesting story we when it, we took our initial position at Disney about a year ago um, pays an di- okay dividend yield we think it's undervalued just based where it is today but they are getting in the direct consumer business um, Disney Plus is going to come out you know in November right. matter of fact there service. was a survey independent survey done 43% of Americans said they were going to sign up for the streaming service. I think Netflix's best days are behind it, and Disney's coming full force. The Fox Studio acquisition, Control of Hulu, there's a lot of good things going on at Disney.
0: All right, yeah, I feel like a lot of folks come in, this is a company they like, as well as the CEO. Ron Carson, thank you so much. Thank you. Good to have you here. Chief, uh, Chief Executive Officer at Carson Group, $10.4 billion in assets under manager, based in Omaha, Nebraska, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Equity is taking another leg up. We'll have those closing numbers and a look at the movers and shakers in just a moment. This is Bloomberg.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.